1: today on CityCast Pittsburgh. Residents are raising a stink about bad smells around the beaver cracker plant. Allergies aren't the only issues with our up and down temperatures and why we think you should hug a tree today. It's the Friday News Roundup, April 28th. I'm Megan Harris, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. I'm with CityCast Mallory Falk and one of our favorite local newsletter writers, Colin Williams from The Incline. Welcome, Colin.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Some dear friends of mine, you know, started The Incline way back when, and our own Hey Pittsburgh writer, Francesca DeBecco, worked there too. We are big fans of your outlet.
2: Oh, I appreciate that.
1: Uh, What are you most excited to talk to us about today?
2: So um, I'm really interested right now in air quality and concerns about pollution because I think that this has just been a fact of life in Pittsburgh for so long. So um, through the Pittsburgh Media Partnership, I've been part of a collaborative group that's working on kind of approaching the topic of air quality through the lens of misinformation. Um, or perhaps better said, in some cases, lack of information. Yeah. Um, so uh, with these other outlets, you know, we've been we've been looking at basically like what do people know? What don't they know? What's harming people here in the area? And how can we get a better handle on what these large polluters are doing, um, whether that's through better governance, through personal action, through, um, you know, really just being more aware of the landscape and sharing that knowledge among neighbors and friends?
1: Yeah, totally. So what do, what don't we know? Tell us, like, what do we what do we need to know about it?
2: So I think, um, you know, one of the big things that's always an indicator of air pollution in Pittsburgh is the, um, the sulfur smell. Like if you're familiar with the Smell Pittsburgh app, that's a really good way to get daily information about air quality. and to The also scent just... of
1: Pittsburgh, rotten eggs. Yes, exactly. That, yeah, that's it, right? That's the sulfur one, bad eggs.
2: Exactly. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I've actually learned through the course of reporting on this is that that smell, while a good indicator of other pollutants, isn't necessarily itself... Um, you know the metric you should use to determine how harmful the pollution is um but it can signal that there are lots of kind of Unregulated emissions coming from smokestacks that maybe a plant is flaring off unwanted gases, or that, um, as in 2019 with the um, with the Clairton Works fire, that the pollution controls simply aren't functioning anymore. So hydrogen sulfide is kind of like the leading indicator of pollution, but that there is, are all these is a other chemical chemicals that
1: floats around in the air. Yeah, let's, let's keep it back to basics. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll try and, like, s- keep this as simple as possible, but there's, there are kind of a couple things to be aware of, and one of the worst things for Pittsburgher's lungs is PM2.5, which is basically, like, tiny soot particles in the air.
1: Okay, so, so that's, that's, like, literally when something burns, that gets released?
2: Yeah, when, for example, when coal is um, is burned in a low-oxygen environment, which is what they do at the Clairton Works, that particle pollution is literally just, like, coal smoke basically coming from the plant. Um, and then, you know, of course there are other chemicals. Um, you can get these kind of these other sulfuric compounds that are very harmful to to the lungs. But, um, now with the, with the ethylene cracker plant up in Beaver County, that shell has opened, there's a whole nother range of things to be concerned about like benzene. There's also the issues of light pollution of noise pollution. So, um, That pollution doesn't necessarily begin and end with toxic chemicals. There are lots of ways that this can negatively affect lives here in the area.
0: And we'll get more into that ethane cracker a little later in the show. Uh, So glad you brought it up here. I know you've been reporting with
1: a bunch of local outlets. Um, Your fourth installment just came out. Uh, The latest one seems to focus mostly on temperature inversions. Can you explain what that means? I've read about it and I just can't I can't get it to cement in my brain.
2: So the way that I kind of always think about this is our river valleys are sort of like like bowls or like gutters that run through our city and carry water and air. <laughs>
3: Our valleys are like gutters. It's like It should be a new tourism slogan.
2: <laughs> you'll pitch that to visit Pittsburgh. Um, but so what can happen when the temperature drops is that the cold air from the atmosphere kind of settles over top of these valleys and sort of puts a lid on things. So you'll have a situation where... The air is moving, let's say, from west to east, as often our weather, weather patterns do. Like rain often comes to us from Ohio. But while that happens, there's this like seal over top of the valley. So you can kind of picture like if you saran wrapped over the Mon, all the pollution that's made by polluters who are further down in the valley, like Clareton, that stuff can just flow up the river valley and into the city. And so when you see these spikes in reports on Smell Pittsburgh and things like that, it's usually the result of a temperature inversion that is... Basically creating a pathway where air can actually move in different directions from the prevailing weather patterns. And this stuff just kind of floats up through Squirrel Hill over into Highland Park and throughout the rest of the city. And you can can sometimes even tell from Smell-Pittsburgh which direction these inversion currents are moving because the reports may come from further south. Or they may be more in the East End, so you can kind of see sort of the geography of it a little bit.
0: Interesting. So, what actually creates these inversions? Like, is this somebody's fault that they happen?
2: It's it's just a natural phenomenon. Mm. Um, I, I think climate change, um, you know, may exacerbate kind of how this happens, depending on how quickly you know how fast the wind is or whatever. Um, but in general, it's just a it's a natural phenomenon that just kind of, you know, for better or worse you know plays havoc with with what local people are doing and so when you have these polluters and an inversion happens um the county's been working on trying to put rules in place to make sure that there's there are fewer emissions during those times but um yeah i that's a whole another can of worms really <laughs> <laughs> can,
1: can we tell when it's going to happen like can you kind of like gauge that or like try to put in precautions like does it have to do with up and down temperatures or anything like that
2: so I'm obviously not a meteorologist, of but, course, of course. But the um, the quick drops in temperatures can often lead to those inversions. I mean, I noticed in mid-April there was a, about a week long spate of really bad air quality days, and on all of those days it was bright and sunny. Um, it would be there. the high temperature was like in the mid 60s, and then at night it would drop toward near freezing. Mm-hmm. And so with those like rapid swings in temperature. Um, the warm air that's in the river valleys basically gets trapped, like it doesn't have time to kind of get forced out. So that's when that lid effect really happens over the city.
0: So are these inversions always harmful?
2: I wouldn't say they're always harmful because it really just comes down to how much pollution is present at those times. Oh. Like if you had polluters stopping polluting before an inversion, which is what the county's air quality rules have attempted to enforce, it would be a lot less harmful. Hmm. The issue is when you have a high quality of pollution and then you have that inversion that you can create a scenario kind of like the Donora smog disaster where you're basically just containing all of the pollutants in a given area. And if there's not enough wind to flush those out, then people are just going to be breathing that in for hours.
1: I was shocked by your story and just how many days we experience with inversions. It was like nearly half the year.
2: It's quite a lot. I mean our topography has some really good advantages, like the beautiful views that we get to enjoy all the time in the city. But it does create some problems when it comes to these weather patterns. And, and one of the things that, you know, has kind of come to my attention or through through reporting on this is that, you know, if, if it weren't for modern meteorology, we would maybe still be just heavily polluting and having the steel industry and perhaps not understanding fully the health effects. And I wonder, you know, if people had known about inversions, if this would have become the steel center that it did. But mm. with the natural resources we had and the, you know, relative lack of sophistication around knowledge of weather at, in the 1800s, people were just like, oh, yeah, this is where we're going to do it.
1: Yeah. Oh, and uh, just to clarify for folks, um, if you're not familiar with Denora smog, that was in 1948. It was right after World War II. I know I'm sure about that, um, where a lot of people died because smog got trapped in Denora, Pennsylvania. Um, Definitely worth a Google if you're not familiar with what happened.
2: Yeah, and there's a museum in Denora actually that they're they're going to be doing a commemoration, and they're doing a um, they're doing like a day at the museum where they'll have talks and things like that. If you're interested in learning more,
0: so can you know non meteorologists, just regular people, track these kinds of things or, or do anything to help?
2: Well, you can monitor the air. Um, you can close your windows at night. You can um, look at the air quality index before you decide to do outdoor activities there are an increasing number of places where you can get real-time information on air quality. So I often will just open Smell Pittsburgh and see what the county's air quality monitors are saying about the particulate level in my area. Um, but increasingly, people are also getting their own monitors. There's this uh, company, Purple Air, that makes basically monitors for like civilian use, if you can call it that. And they have a, a map that's consistently updated with the real air quality. So you can tell like, every 15 minutes whether the air quality is improving or worsening. Now, Having said all this, that's not a preventative measure. And so I think there's there's relatively little that we as Pittsburghers can do to prevent these things. So, yeah, you're always kind of more in a reactive rather than a proactive um, situation unless you are these companies who are polluting or the regulators who are overseeing them.
1: Yeah, I was just glancing at my iPhone. It does have an air quality thing at the bottom, which I've glanced at before, and it'll send me an alert from time to time, but I've probably not been as uh, diligent about checking that as I could be as a Pittsburgher.
0: So, is there any more reporting um, coming on this? Even if it is a little deflating to learn that the more you learn, there's not necessarily immediate action you can take beyond closing your bedroom windows. But if we want to ke- learn more about this and follow any developments, is there more coming? I can't
1: believe closing your bedroom window is like the advice we get.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, and this, it's
2: such a year bummer of our too. Lord of
3: 2023, close your bedroom window.
2: I mean, when it's when it's like you know between 50 and 60 degrees, that's also like the perfect temperature to have your windows open. But that can mean if the temperatures are dropping. That you you might be playing with fire I on that know. stuff, but as as far as the further reporting though, um, yeah, I'm really excited about what's going to be coming out to kind of round out this project. So we've had four pieces published that approach it from these different angles. So mine was more focused on grassroots science. City Paper, as I mentioned, did the meteorology. Union Progress covered how this is being how air quality monitoring is used with fracking. Um, and we're going to have some more reporting coming out from the Allegheny Front um, on the radio about Shell specifically. Um, we have some tentative plans for a coverage of the Donora smog disaster anniversary through the Mon Valley Independent, and there may be actually be some other stories that come through this as well. I know the Pittsburgh Independent has continued to follow leads about what county elected officials are saying, and um, yeah, we've we've had some interest from from folks like Environmental Health News in further amplifying this work and potentially contributing as well.
3: Do you like to dance?
0: So speaking of air quality, some of our listeners might remember an episode we did last year about a new shell plant that was opening in Beaver County, the ethane cracker that you mentioned, Colin. Um, you know, it's a cracker plant, which like to me at first sounded like it would be pumping out saltines or something. But <laughs> Every major story in town <laughs> at first was, what is a cracker? <laughs> exactly. I think including us. Um, but yeah, it's actually making plastic out of ethane. Um you know, even before it opened, environmental groups and some residents were concerned about the air pollution it might cause. Um, Friend of the pod Reed Fraser from the Allegheny Front talked to some families who had left Beaver County or were considering moving because of those concerns. Um, so I've got an update on this story. Colin, I was going to ask if you were familiar with this plant, but clearly you are um, as you've been following pollution and air inversions.
2: Yeah, I had a chance to talk to um, a couple different environmental groups about the cracker plant specifically. So I spoke with Eyes on Shell and BC Mac, which is the Beaver County Marcellus Awareness Community. And Um, I think one big difference with the cracker plan is that people have been following this from before the cornerstone was even laid. 100%. Mm
1: Because it's also right by a major trail system that people use like crazy. Um, There was a big construction project with a bridge just close to it. Um, Plus, it's across the river from a really thriving community. So people have been watching this thing for a while.
2: One of the things that was pointed out to me that is a little bit scary is that beyond just any of the air quality concerns or, or water quality concerns, because I know there have been locals monitoring whether there are plastic pellets and floating down the Ohio and that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: Reed talked a lot about that.
2: The nurdles. The nurdles. Yes. The nurdles. Beware the nurdles. <laughs> um, but the, the cracker plant is also built. Um, On a brownfield site, there was a lead and zinc smelter there previously. Mm -hmm. And in order to remediate the brownfield site, they covered it in eight feet of topsoil and then built the cracker plant on top of it. So uh, Bob Schmetzer from uh, BC Mac uh, expressed to me a very strong concern that should something happened with the pipelines going into the cracker plant, which is it's a 24-inch wide um, compressed natural gas line. Should the the earth underneath the plant settle, it could cause a pipeline crack, potentially creating the, the circumstances for an explosion.
1: Oh, my God. Colin, you're making this a lot darker than I thought yeah. it was going to be.
2: <laughs> well, and there's also, there's also rail infrastructure immediately next to it. There's a BASF chemical plant there. So his, his words were, we live in a very dangerous area. And I... I really took that to heart. And now, it you know, this East Palestine disaster has also just made me very aware of all the rail infrastructure we have here in Pittsburgh. So yeah, this is where regulation, I think, is is going to be really important in the future.
0: Yeah, this seems like something that shutting your bedroom window isn't going to yeah, protect we, you we've, from. We've moved on now. <laughs> But, and, you know, I'm bringing up the plant now because um, this week on Tuesday, Shell just had its first public meeting with the community since the plant opened in November. Um, and what triggered this was that earlier this month, I guess there was a really bad smell coming from the plant. Um, residents understandably freaked out about that. Um, the state's investigating and that led Shell to hold this virtual meeting. I
1: remember seeing headlines about the smell. Did they ever figure out or say what it was?
0: Yeah. Before I get into what it the smell actually was um i just you know i was. there's been some great reporting on this both from reed frazier at allegheny front and also christy settles with the beaver county times and i was just really struck by the way people described this smell um so some people told reed it smelled like burning gas and maple syrup mixed together and one woman said it was like someone came in her backyard and just doused it with gasoline um and then this another woman told chrissy that um It smells like if you burned rotten potatoes, but used garage chemicals to do it. Um, And people (laughs) reported getting headaches, feeling nauseous, having burning or watery eyes. So people were unsettled. And yeah, like you wanted to know what the smell was. Um, so the public meeting, did did they clarify anyone's concerns or I guess, you know, I assume it wasn't actually potatoes. <laughs> it was not potatoes being bur- burned with garage chemicals. um Yeah. So Shell's message essentially has been that th- th- there was an incident that caused these smells um and they apologize for any inconvenience it may have caused. But the community is safe. So they say crews were dry. Drained- Are they, though? Well, we'll get into that. um. But first, yeah, here's what Shell shared. They said crews were draining a tank to get ready for some scheduled maintenance and that it led to this release of hydrocarbons or like an oily water mixture that caused the smell. Um, Shell has air monitors at the plant, and they detected higher than normal levels of volatile organic compounds after this incident. These are like various chemicals that include benzene, like you mentioned before, Colin, which is a known carcinogen. But Shell says the levels didn't exceed federal limits. Um, They brought in this senior toxicologist from an environmental consulting firm, which, by the way, the PG reports is the same environmental consulting firm that responded after the train derailment in East Palestine. Um, and gosh. Yeah. Is
1: that a good thing or a bad thing?
0: Well, I did find a ProPublica article that said this company has been accused of repeatedly downplaying health risks. So there's that. Um, But yeah, this toxicologist said that the levels of benzene detected at the fence line of the plant were too low to cause, quote, even transient discomfort or irritation, Um, And he said that the odors themselves might have caused these feelings of nausea and headaches as opposed to the chemicals. He also said that, you know, um, that odors can alert people to the presence of an airborne chemical, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like a harmful amount of that chemical is present in the air.
2: That's interesting to hear because one of the things that I heard kind of looking more deeply into the East Palestine thing is that at the concentrations that people were smelling chlorine, it was extremely harmful. Like if mm-hmm. it reached that level of like, you can smell it, it's not good for you. I don't know. I mean, obviously, we're talking about very different chemicals here, right. polyvinyl chloride versus uh, ethene and uh, ethane and ethylene. But um, yeah, I would not be... I would not feel terribly reassured by that information.
1: (laughs) Well, and especially that it's coming after the fact and after a lot of advocacy to get them to speak on it. You know, like these smells happened a long time ago. There's also been other complaints about flares and like colors in the sky and things changing and not getting a lot of response out of Shell. So I can see how maybe folks are not feeling great about it? I don't know. I'm I'm assuming that you've done a little bit more research as to what folks have actually said after the fact.
0: Yeah. So, you know, Chrissy settles with the Beaver County Times talked to this guy named Clifford Lau. He's a chemist and he volunteers with Eyes on Shell, the the watchdog group you mentioned, Colin. Um, And he agreed that like the benzene levels probably weren't high enough to have caused these symptoms but he said what he's actually more worried about is the, you know, potential long-term impact of just these regular, like, low level exposures to chemicals like benzene. I feel like Um, I
1: remember Reed talking about this some.
0: Exactly. Well, he told us that when he came on the show, he told us that the shell plant um, is permitted to be the second biggest emitter of volatile organic compounds in Pennsylvania. It's by far the biggest one in our region. Um, The way Lau described it was that the plant's causing people to live in a chemical soup. Oh, that's gross. And so there's just like, you know, the levels are going up and down, but regardless, there's kind of this constant exposure um, to these chemicals. And, you know, that has him and other community members worried. Um, and I think it's also just important to point out that this isn't like the first incident or issue since the ethane cracker opened, right? Like not the first time these we've had these smells. Um, the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection has issued like numerous notices of violation against Shell for things like exceeding pollution limits and visible emissions from flaring or burning off excess gases. I've heard it described as looking like the sky is on fire. Yeah, I've seen
1: photos. My brother-in-law lives really close to there and he can see it um, from his place in Rochester. Yeah. yeah, and
2: I talked to some folks who said that they live, you know, three miles away and it's they can still sometimes see it wow. from their house at night. Yeah, yeah, we were
1: watching fireworks last year. The plant wasn't even operational yet and we could still see like the glow of it. It, it really Really puts a a different feeling on the Fourth of July, you know. Yeah,
0: what I mean? yeah. I mean, it feels kind of like nuclear wastelandy a little bit. That um, yeah. you know, there was a flaring incident as recently as March after an equipment malfunction, and the plant hasn't even been open for six months at this point. So this just like is not the most reassuring track record to already have this many violations in less than half a year.
1: Totally. Um, so I guess what happens now
0: that they've had this meeting? Yeah, so the Shell plant is, you know, currently shut down for maintenance. Um, Shell hasn't said when it will reopen, but they said they'll post an update on Facebook. It seems like Facebook is kind of the main way that they communicate. And they said they'll let people know in advance because there's going to be more flaring when it reopens. Um, And then I know back in February, a couple environmental groups announced their plan to sue Shell to try to get it to comply with state and federal air rules. So, you know, still kind of looking to see where that suit goes, but it does not sound like all the questions and concerns of uh, Beaver County residents have been addressed.
2: That's certainly not the impression that I got doing my reporting, and I would I would say one other thing that's really interesting with Beaver County is that I'm um, you know as as Pittsburghers we're used to a lot of county oversight. There's a county health department. There are local regulations about what these plants can and cannot do. In Beaver County, the situation's much different because they don't have a health department at all. Yeah. Mm. Um, they also have as as in many areas of Pennsylvania, lots of small municipalities with local control, and so you have individual townships who are in some cases making decisions on what this multinational oil company is able to do within the county. And then when it's time for things like more oversight, there's really nobody outside of the state and the feds to provide that. And so I think in in the case of Shell, what we're seeing is that there's been a lot more activism on the community level, in part because there's really, I feel like folks are just filling a vacuum. Mm -hmm. There aren't these local regulatory authorities. And so people have had to kind of take matters into their own hands.
1: And finally, it is almost Arbor Day. We have a ton of green space in Pittsburgh, um, but our tree canopy apparently is not as good as it could be. Colin, we were talking a little bit off mic about your new addition. Tell us about that new arrival.
2: Yeah, we got a baby crab apple in front of our house. A new tree. A new tree. And so Pittsburgh, I'm so happy we get to talk about something that is, you know, really a sign of Pittsburgh rejuvenating itself and getting greener um but one thing that locals may not know is that getting a tree in front of your house is actually free
1: mm-hmm.
2: um so the city shade tree commission if you i i actually snail mailed them uh, a request <laughs> form for novel a tree of you. yeah which felt very it felt you very killed quaint you
0: a tree to request a tree <laughs>
2: <laughs> so we we had a linden tree in front of our house that was just rotting away. The city came and cut it down in the span of an hour about 6 months after I put in my request, and then a month later they came in, they cut up the sidewalk, and now we have a little crabapple tree. So the process took a little while, but it was we literally had to do nothing except send a letter, and now we just get to admire our lovely new tree. Did
1: you get to choose the tree?
2: They actually choose for you based on what is most helpful for the local canopy. So oh. Um, The Shade Tree Commission came by and kind of did an evaluation of our neighborhood and determined that the crabapple would be the best fit. Um, We've seen them put in a couple other trees in the neighborhood. I think they put in some cherries and um, some other nice flowering species. But one thing that they do... Which is really nice is they make sure that the the trees they put in are utility friendly, so when our little baby crabapple grows up, it won't get tangled in the power lines like our linden did, and then you don't yeah. get these weird trees with like their their arms all akimbo to avoid the power lines.
1: Totally. We talked to um, the executive director of Tree Pittsburgh, Danielle Crumrine, last year, and she was talking all about that, like how you know just the way that they go about making those decisions has changed radically in the last ten to fifteen years. Before you know, it was people got to kind of request their own or you know, you'd say like, oh, a maple might look nice here, but that's not how they make choices anymore, which seems like a really cool evolution in that space.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you think about all the maples in Pittsburgh that are pushing up sidewalk blocks, I think it's pretty clear why they they shifted away from that. So I'm I'm glad both that we have a tree back, which will provide some shade and some privacy. But I'm also glad that they got us a tree that isn't going to destroy our sidewalk or, you know, push roots up into the garden or anything like that. So uh,
1: the canopy, of course, is responsible for a bunch of cool things like shade, uh, wind control, water erosion, noise buffering, which I think a lot of us forget about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, pollution cleansing. Um It's interesting to kind of dig into some of the data that the city's put together over the years.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I know Tree Pittsburgh mapped out our canopies like, what, a decade ago. But is there any new data about the tree canopy here? I think we're
1: supposed to get some soon. I remember Danielle told us last year that they were due for something fresh. Um, Colin, do you want to take a guess which neighborhoods, as of that old data, of course, um, have the highest percentage of tree cover?
2: Well, Number one has got to be haze because that neighborhood is mostly forest. Mm. Um,
1: I am shocked. I was going to give you points if you got anything in the top ten <laughs> with
2: ninety-eight. <laughs> right? You did. You, oh, no, you nailed s- it
1: right out the gate. Eighty-two percent of Hayes is entirely tree. Which, by the way, I cannot for wait covered. for
2: that to become a park. I did a little hiking in in Hayes Woods. I'm not sure if that's legal. So if it, if if it isn't, <laughs> I, that's satire. Um, but it's if it's, you saw
1: Colin, no, you didn't. It has a,
2: it has potential to be a really beautiful park. Um, beyond Hayes, I would say. Probably like Squirrel Hill has a ton of tree cover because they've got the parks. uh, Not
1: in the top 10, but I think that's a good guess. Oh,
2: interesting. Um, And then, hmm, what else would have the most tree? Highland Park has a lot of trees. Also not the top 10. Man, I know none of the parks. Isn't that interesting? Oh my goodness! Um,
1: so Glen Hazel, very close, eighty-one percent. A a close second. Saint Clair has sixty-nine percent. Um, New Homestead, which I don't think I realized was a distinction, is sixty-seven percent. And then Perry North. Um, is 64% um, repping the north side. Um, And then coming in, uh, the next five are Spring Garden, Regent Square, Ridgemont, Arlington Heights, and Oakwood. A lot of neighborhoods we do not say the names of all that often.
2: Yeah, I think actually, you know, thinking about that list, like the top five in some cases have had public housing projects that were demolished Mm -hmm. and have left behind like largely urban prairie and forest. St. Clair, I think, is If I'm not mistaken, it's home to one of the city's biggest urban farms.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then Perry North, of course, still has a housing project. um, But it's good to see that at least the green cover, green space has been preserved to to a degree. So are you all doing anything to celebrate Arbor Day today?
2: Uh, I will probably just enjoy some time outside. Um, You know, take a maybe high five my crab apple on my way back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah good day to hug a tree
0: i this i might actually celebrate by requesting a tree there is no tree in front of uh i just moved into a new house with no tree congrats so thank you so maybe that'll be a the way that i celebrate by trying to get my own personal baby crab apple. I love that. Um,
1: well, if you do want to celebrate in public, there's an Arbor Day celebration on Saturday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Tree Pittsburgh is involved. Um, there'll be tree care and green space lessons plus activities and games and food trucks and live music. Um, it's all at Mellon Park in Shadyside.
0: And also, you should definitely check out our episode with Danielle from Tree Pittsburgh, which went into how to get a tree planted, um, what species they recommend for different areas. Sounds like maple is off the list. (laughs) I Um, think it's just in particular places, right? Gotcha. Um, And also, uh, what our local lawmakers could do to help homeowners make their properties a lot nicer.
1: It was a very good one. Um, We'll have a link in our show notes, plus um, all of Colin's great work as well. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Really appreciate the invite. Great talking to you guys.
1: That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Our music is by Benji. Mallory Falk is our lead producer. Special help this week from Natalie Rivera, Lizzie Goldsmith, and Noah Snyderman. Our newsletter editor is Francesca DeBecco, and I'm your host, Megan Harris. We'll be back on Monday with more news from around the city. Have a good weekend, Yens.
0: You know, I lived in the Southwest where you couldn't <laughs> see a tree of your life depending on it. So maybe my data is a little skewed.